0: This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, this is Mark.
1: Sometimes talking to a friend or family member about permaculture can be met with a blank stare if it's all new to them. A great way to explain some of it can be over a card game using permaculture playing cards, which each have interesting facts with quality illustrations and descriptions. A wide range of people, places, and things, all related to permaculture, can be found on the permaculture playing cards at richsoil.com forward slash
0: cards. All right, i got Alan Booker with me. We're going to get back into exploring the Big Black Book, uh, Bill Mollison's book, Permaculture, A Designer's Manual. Um, <clears throat> we are on page 14. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, did you know, I want you to take a guess, and maybe you already know the answer because you looked it up like I did. Uh, how long has it been since we were last uh, reviewing the Big Black Book? I think that was about a year ago. It's actually more than a year ago. 14 wow. months ago. Yeah. It seems like, I, I mean, uh, looking, looking at the dates, it was 14 months ago, kind of feels like maybe it was seven months ago. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just so much is going on. So much is one of, one of the points that we've made is how there was a PDC that was coming up in 10 months or something. Mm-hmm. Time. And, and now there's a PDC coming up in like six or seven months, uh, something like that. The 2022 PDC that, that you'll be teaching at, at my place again. Um we've already got a bunch of tickets sold for that by the way. Oh. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's happening. Um, uh, alright, but <clears throat> today we're going to jump into page 14. Of, now, I think it's fair to say that the page number will be the same for any books probably bought after a certain date. Like, I don't, I'm not even sure what the copyright date is on mine. Um, In the different versions I have
1: seen, I have not seen one that has different page numbering. Um, That's not to say something doesn't exist, but in terms of a newer version um, that's been slightly, you know, relayed out, but, I think most people should have the same page numbers that we're talking about. Yeah, I think uh, so, too. Maybe the best thing to say is we're talking about figure 2.1. We
0: we could do that. I, I, I guess what I'm trying to do I'm thinking, like, uh, I want to um, use the page numbers. And it's like, you know, my my first thought is, is that there's different editions, and that, of course, won't work. But I I kind of feel like, you know what, for this book, I think it totally will work. The one I the copy I have says copyright 1988. Um, Didn't you say that the first version was in 1981? No, it was 88. That's that's the first version. Oh, okay. All right, all right. I thought that there were some slight changes, but nope. Okay. Um. Uh. We're gonna get into some some hairy topics here in a moment, but first, I think that the most powerful thing is page 14 is. This image and, and, it's like, uh, uh, I think that the, uh, the people that are keen on keyline are going to say that the image on page 14 is stolen from PA yeomans. Like when people, uh, think of permaculture, they think of what is on page 14 and the, the keyline people want to slap that idea out of your head and say, no, this is, this is, this is keyline stuff right here. Am I? Do you agree with that?
1: I would say that there's a lot of
0: relationship. I mean, I've read
1: Water for Every Farm. I've read, you know, several of other yeoman's work. And um, his idea for how to, you know, put together water in a S-formed landscape, you know, the temperate, the temperate landscape, um, has some similarities here. This is actually much more just illustrating an idea. Of repatterning flows uh, as a designer, and um, he doesn't get into specifics of how to do it, which is exactly what Yeomans did. Exactly the strategies for patterning uh, water in in a primary valley um, and along primary ridges and so forth. Uh, this is much more. This diagram is much more conceptual to me. It's much more about thinking about the fact that as a designer, we are looking at how to repattern
0: flows in strategic ways. Okay. So um, let's kind of, I'm going to try to describe what we're looking at. And, um, and so it's, it's a uh, chunk of land that might be about 50 acres is a guess. Um, and uh, it. Is not just a bit of a draw, but it um, it is the end of a draw. So it's like the water that lands anywhere on this land tends to head downhill. So there's a on the near side of the land, the the, the where the image faces the user, let's say, is the low point, and the far end is the high point for some of the high points, and so there's kind of a U-shape of sorts where um, it's, it's rather conventional. The water lands, it goes uh, to the lowest point, and it just drains out. Um, so it's kind of like the beginning of a valley. I, I've always called this feature a draw.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeomans, if, if I'm reading this diagram properly, it's kind of implying that there's something of a ridge line Towards the back, you know, your uh, ridge line running from left to right, mm-hmm. and that therefore this would be sort of a little uh, valley coming down off that ridge line, uh, coming towards the front of the diagram.
0: And on yeah. the left and the right are lesser ridges. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So um, then, so we've got that the top half is what was there when you arrived. The top diagram. There's there's the same piece of land is drawn twice. Mm-hmm. So at the top is what was originally there, and then the bottom got a bunch of permaculture love. And um the the thing that, that's trying to demonstrate, the thing that the image is attempting to demonstrate is that by default the water just goes down under the draw and out. Just the shortest possible path very direct, quick path, and as the uh, decades and centuries pass, the water tends to kind of carve into this draw a bit. And then along comes the Permi, and then the the Permi starts to um, build a collection of ponds, starting with something like at the highest point on the land, or not maybe not the highest point, but quite high, quite high on the land, and then makes a an artificial, let's say a ditch, um, to carry the overflow from that to another pond that is quite a ways away, but it's just only slightly lower than the highest pond. And then... On and on and on and on like that until you've got like what looks like about a dozen ponds. 13 ponds. And then, um, so, uh, what runs out of a high pond goes into a, the next pond, which goes into the next, pond, which goes the next pond, which goes to the next pond. So, and it crisscrosses back and forth across the property. On top of that, the the lower image, the Permi image, also has a lot of trees, and it looks like they are deciduous trees. Um, it looks like there's also a couple of little windmills added in, in there. Is that what I'm seeing? I believe so. Okay. Um, no structures, uh, uh, nothing else. Just It looks like ponds, trees, and windmills is the only change... The above image, and it looks like the above image, the the original image, had no trees. It was bare land. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah I had always read that, and those windmills as being mechanical windmills that were used to pump water to a higher pond when the wind was uh, um, allowing. Ooh. Okay. All right. All right. If you look closely, there are some arrows showing what looks to be water maybe moving uphill um, around those windmills. So I'm assuming that. You know, uh, one of the more effective ways of using a windmill instead of trying to generate electricity is to use a mechanical pump on a windmill to pump water uphill.
0: Oh, smart. Yes, I, I think you are correct, sir. That's, that is what I am seeing also. Yes. Um, all right. I, I mean, basically the idea is, is that we're going to try and, and hold the water on the land. Much longer. We're going to try and slow it down. We're going to try and pool it up. Um, and, and yeah. So now I, uh, I do think that, and I'm sure we've probably covered this in past podcasts, um, and that is that what Mollison has done is, is that he has gone and collected knowledge from, I'm going to say, 5,000 different sources. And then he has taken his favorite 100 bits or 1 100 sources or maybe his favorite 1,000 bits and found a way to glue them together so that they all work together. So he's, I think he's very openly taking the ideas from many different people, in this case, P.A. Yeomans, and gluing them all together to make permaculture. So I do believe that this that this idea that is presented in nineteen eighty eight was actually um much earlier from the fifties, because isn't is P.A. Yeoman's book from like nineteen fifty four or something like that. Yes. Yeah.
1: But I mean you go back and you look at it and you realize that PA Yeomans didn't invent it either, that indigenous people have been doing Things uh, of a similar nature, you know, for a long time before that, you look at the Ohana systems in Hawaii and you realize that they had an idea that was, you know, in, in terms of this whole idea of repatterning to keep the water and to uh, make it take a longer path and hold it for longer on the landscape. You know, that's a that's an idea that we don't really know where it, you know where it originated. It's just been around for a very long time. Yeah, Yeoman's definitely codified it and uh, into a, a specific system uh, that could be uh, taught and uh, wrote about it. So we definitely need to give him credit for that.
0: Okay. Um. I, uh, I would say that, yeah, you gotta give him credit for that. I, I wanna say that, uh, it's, there's something about documenting it. I mean it's one thing if somebody does a thing like I did it first and it's kinda like, Well did you document it? Did you share it with anybody? No. Then it's kinda like I don't know. Yeah, you did it and uh uh and and yet I don't know, you you didn't exactly help us all to understand it or whatever, whereas PA yeomans did step in and made it so that others could understand it and appreciate it. So I kind of feel like there's something to be said for the people that invented it, and I imagine that this is an idea that's um, something that may have been invented a thousand times in a thousand different places by a thousand different people. Yeah. As far as we know, P.A. Yeomans is the first to actually document it and then therefore infect many more brains with it. Yeah, I think I mean, you have to go, go back and look at the
1: fact that many indigenous people, their culture was oral. You know, and therefore they encoded their information in uh, stories and oral traditions, and that's how they passed them down. So, you know, that's, that was their, that was their
0: mechanism of uh, knowledge keeping. Fair. Absolutely fair. Absolutely fair. So, um, when we try to talk about this, I think, I think the place where I'm trying to go is to say that, uh, Mollison, Glued all these pieces together, but he was, I believe, quite respectful to the, the people where he glommed the information from. But because permaculture got a lot more traction than keyline stuff, then people attribute this general design to permaculture. As and I think that the people that advocate for keyline um, and are keyline are keen on keyline. I think that they've they've got a point. You know. That, uh, this, this should be attributed to Keyline and PA Yeomans rather than permaculture. And and it's like, well, fair, fair, and yet here we are. And when we think of permaculture, I think that what we, what we observe here is one of the, the key things. Now, speaking of, uh, people adopting things and not knowing about the other things, um, Sepulcher. This is exactly what he does on his property, is that he's got uh, 110 acres, and he has about 70 ponds. And then the water crisscrosses back and forth, although he has taken an extra step further and and somehow kept the cold water and the warm water separate. And he has systems where at the lowest point on his land, he has... Uh, uh, A buffet of different ways of pumping water back up to the top of this land. And so recycling that water, reusing that water, keeping it passing through. Um, Which, you know, it's possible that humans suggest at some point. I'm not familiar with that, but um, uh, the little, the little windmills here kind of suggest a little bit of that, not as much as what Ulcer does. Right and and Holzer may have gotten it from Yeomans because I get the impression that that Holzer had heard the word permaculture until like uh, around the time that Bill Mollison showed up at his place and said this is permaculture. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think there, like I said, there there are different traditions uh, that have been around on many continents that use ideas of this nature. Uh, they do emerge and you know, these kinds of landscapes where you've got terrain and where water wants to run off quickly if you don't do anything with it. So, you know, there I guess we could go back and do a literature search and and find, you know, historically the many different ways in which these ideas have descended down into, you know, modern usage. Um, but I would say they've probably emerged on multiple continents and and we could track them that way if we wanted to go back and spend the time to do it.
0: All right, I um, I, I just kind of feel like this this image is one of the things that is a powerful draw for me to permaculture is basically um, getting you know holding on to the water from the wet season through the dry season and um, and being able to improve the the overall hydrology on a property and this is an excellent example of romancing nature that that with without the gardener then um, nature pines for the gardener and and then when there is a romance between nature and the gardener that so much there's so much more there there is um, uh, a joy that comes out of it which is expressed in water and trees and gardens and mushrooms. This This big part of permaculture to me.
1: Yes, I mean when I look at this one, the the thing that hits me is that you know this is human beings acting as a keystone species in the landscape, uh, which we have for tens of thousands of years, if not more. um, That what we're looking at is repatterning of flows to create, you know, uh, storages and uh, therefore articulate edge. We're creating new edge. Um, and interestingly, we aren't just creating storages, but in some cases, which I would call an accumulation, but in some cases we can use the similar strategies to also create um, drainages or water shadows so that we can create gradients across the landscape. We can actively create areas with more, accumulation and others intentionally with less accumulation to create uh, additional uh, ecosystem edge right with additional uh, niches that didn't exist before creating ecotones and boundaries in landscapes and therefore increasing the overall biodiversity and fertility of the landscape so there when you start repatterning water And, again, we just would go back to talking about Yeoman's uh, scale of permanence. You know, water is very high. Hydrology of the landscape is very high on the scale of permanence. It's one of the very first things that you address in um, this scale of land design. When you do that and you articulate that edge, you repattern to create accumulations and shadows, then um, you are setting the stage for a lot of your downstream design by creating this diversity of habitat, a diversity of environmental niches, uh, and so forth. And then from there, uh, that's, that starts to set backbone patterning for subsequent stages of the land design, including where access is going to go, where buildings will eventually go, and so forth.
0: I am ready to move away from page fourteen, and my first notes for page fifteen are at the top of the second column, but do you have anything else you want to say about page fourteen
1: um, no i think'm I think I'm, i' think I'm, I'm pretty happy with fourteen. I guess I would say over there just noting that um, page fifteen uh, has Birch's six principles of natural systems, and i won't go uh, I don't want to talk through all of those individually, but I do want to um, point out something that I think is is important. Um, this chapter does use the word sustainable quite a bit, and I have of course, as a systems engineer gone over to using the word regenerative quite a bit and um, uh, I guess just to point this out um Sustainable, the way it has been defined and in many cases greenwashed these days, um, is about it, – it carries with it this idea of maintaining a system at its current state of productivity. And the more you study um, biological systems, living systems, and the dynamics of living systems, the more you realize that, of course, that is – just about an impossible task because living systems are evolving. They're learning evolving, um, autopoetic systems. And autopoiesis is the, the process of self-making. They make themselves, they build, they expand over time. And I guess maybe to, to make it more concrete, what I'm saying is like, you know, Paul, you, you've been a gardener. What if I told you your, your goal was to make your garden sustainable? In the sense that it stayed exactly as it was, is that doable?
0: Um, of course, it is doable, and, and of course, the point you're trying to get at is is that that's not what I want. Well, no, I mean you can't keep a garden in the sta- in stasis.
1: A garden has living systems in it; it will constantly be evolving and changing. True. Right. That's what I'm saying. You There's can't no way to stop that. <clears throat> that's right. in general, your garden is either, is going somewhere. It's not staying static. And if you look at it from that perspective, you start to realize that living systems evolving over time are generally either regenerating or degenerating. Holding them in a point of exact stasis is very difficult, if not impossible. And so when we start looking at whether our design is successful, instead of saying, is it sustainable? I like to look at where is, what is its velocity? Where is it headed? Is it actually slowly regenerating or maybe quickly regenerating or is it degenerating? Um, because trying to design a system such that it is in stasis, um, basically, uh, it refuses to, to look at and deal with life systems as a living system. And I point that out because as an engineer, I was, you know, I was trained to design mechanistic systems, um, which are simplified, non-complex systems. Um, and it, it kind of comes from this platonic ideal of, that the ideal things are constant and solid and never evolving. They, that we build a building and it, if we built the building perfectly, it would stand unchanged for a thousand years. And that therefore a garden is the same thing. If you built the perfect garden then the garden would stand there exactly the same for a thousand years, uh, which is completely antithetical to life process. We know that when you build a building, a building starts to degenerate. It is a degenerative asset. It begins To fall apart as soon as you build it. And um, so if we take this idea of building buildings or machines, and we try to take that metaphor and bring it over into designing living systems, then what we arrive at is this idea of trying to treat to treat natural systems like machines. And um, so we try to make in the way we have decided that they need to behave. And we try to make them simplified and linear. And instead of embracing the complexity, embracing the emergent properties of living systems, embracing their intrinsic capacity to regenerate, we try to push them into a mechanistic model in which they will degenerate. And I think that's one of the critical things If you read through Birch's six principles and then some of the things that Mollison says about them immediately after, that's what comes to mind. And to me, as we get to that second column on 15 where we run into the Mollisonian principles, this is Mollison basically coming to this conclusion of the fact that we have to deal with natural systems as complex auto poetic self-generating, self-making systems that have this capacity to regenerate on their own and work with it and embrace it instead of trying to simplify it and linearize it. And so I think that's the context I would like to bring to discussing the Molisonian principles.
0: Okay. I mean, I think that the key is, and of course, sustainable means barely not dead, just right on that edge. Like we're, we're just barely staying ahead of being, of the system failing. And, uh, uh, and so I, I kind of feel like exactly what you're saying is to say regenerative instead of, uh, sustainable because what we want to do is we want to, you know, uh, romance nature. We want to do so much more. And then, uh, and then within whatever sustainable is talked about, what they're really talking about is the subtext and the subtext being that the alternative is not sustainable, and that it will do a death spiral yeah and and so like uh, so anytime the word sustainable is being used, it's both a uh, a euphemism and I think what what you're saying is not a great goal not i mean it's it's more like it's 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 more like trying to say. Don't sign up for that dumpster fire over there. That you know, it, it's that's the subtext, and and instead, let's do something that's at least better than that. And and so it's kind of, the word sustainable kind of has a a a lot of negativity woven into it because of that, because of the subtext that's part of it, and and so therefore regenerative. On the other hand, as uh, a purely positive, let's let's go forward. Let's let's build up. Rather yeah, than I would,
1: yeah exactly. I, I think that, that the the thing is that the only examples of regenerative systems we have right now are living systems. Uh, we have not, as humans, built mechanistic systems that are regenerative. We've tried to argue that some of them are sustainable, and my argument would be no, they're not. They are all degenerative. They all degenerate over time. The only way we could create mechanistic um, systems that are regenerative would be to network them into a regenerative system in which they are part of a larger network in which their needs Uh, there needs to be repaired and regenerated over time are met from the abundance out of the rest of the system.
0: I think it's possible to make a system in such a way mechanic, you know, the mechanicalistically, if I, if I, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Mechanistically. 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 I think it's like I saw Seth Holzer do it. And, and so when he came to Dayton, Montana, he, in, in 11 days, he built a thing, like nearly a kilometer of hugelkultur, culture, and then poof, he's gone. Then, after he left, the system became more. And now, I, I did go back months later and took video of how the system had become more. And I have not been back since. And I, But I suspect that the system continued to become much more, therefore falling directly into the space of being regenerative. Yes, it and was, it is a living system. And it is a living system. Now, yes. normally what I'm thinking of, for me, anyway, maybe, and and let me say my thing and then you can tell me how wrong I am. I like to think of a regenerative system that would include not just a gardener, but somehow it would be like something where for hundreds of years there will continue to be a gardener here. Like, like we've made a system that doesn't necessarily depend on a gardener, but flourishes with the care of a gardener. So, the gardener is part of the regenerative system. Yes. And so, that is... So, I kind of feel like this book gets attached to a gardener And then go from being a static gardener to being a regenerative gardener. And then on top of that, if I can add in community and I can garden gardeners, then I have made an even more robust, longer-term system that will be regenerative beyond generations.
1: Hey, this is T. Blankenship. Are you a fan of Pi? Where there's Pi at permies.com. This Pi grants the user of secret access. You also get free things like videos of Wheaton Labs, the ability to add two thumbs up, two posts, and more. To get Pi, go to permies.com forward slash Pi to get the inside scoop of what Pi can do for you. Again, that is permies.com forward slash Pi. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the fact that we have to actually say some of these things explicitly is a testament to this pervasive idea in Western civilization that somehow humans are not part of nature. That nature is that thing over there and that we are humans and that we are somehow separate and in some case, in some ways above that. And when I say and talk about designing living systems, To me, it is completely um, explicit because I'll say it very clearly when we're talking about this and teaching in the PDC that humans are an integral part of the natural system and that their role is a role as any other species in that system of a living regenerative system. They just happen to be a keystone species, and if they don't play their role, then the ability of the system to be regenerative is greatly reduced. And so, you know, the first Molisonian design principle we'll get to in a minute is work with nature rather than against it. And to me, when I first read that, I thought to myself, we are part of nature. So I almost want to rephrase that to say, take on your role and embrace your role as a keystone part of the natural ecosystem rather than pretending you're separate from it and fighting against it. Your
0: your function to exist in nature is to be a gardener. Yes. Now, um, when we have that sentiment about humans are separate from nature, I think that a lot of that comes from, and, and you're saying uh, a step up, and and uh, I I think that or or people see themselves as above nature, mm-hmm. then um, I think I can understand where people are going to be like you know hey we should be protecting nature rather than destroying it, um, and and so the position that they're seeing I mean I think I think even the concept of protect nature isn't isn't the goal and. And I do think that there's, there is some value in what they're saying because they're seeing something that is wrong. They look at a capo and they're like, that is not okay, man. Um, and then they look at a city and, and I, you know, I think that a city has its, has its place, but I gotta say that as I get older and I get keener on permaculture with every passing year, Uh, my, my feelings, I'm gonna say my feelings about cities are diminishing. Like, uh, I, I wish for there to be less cities. I wish for, uh, I mean, we, we just finished recording a podcast, uh, yesterday where we talked about uh, how the Colorado River dries up before it reaches the, you know, Los Angeles area. And, yeah. um, because it's, it's, all the water got used up. Um, and, uh, it's, it's kind of like, well, we're trying to grow food, like 90%, some large percentage of the water, possibly 90% is being used for agriculture. So it's not just people. And it's kind of like, but why do they have to grow all that agriculture right there? And of course, why can't they use permaculture techniques and use less water? But it's kinda like um so then they are they're they're, <coughs> they're ready to kind of dismiss it as like, you know, it's not human beings that are using that. And it's like, No, it totally is. Those those agriculture things are human beings and it's also they're trying to make a product that is then fed to nearby human beings. So, um, I I guess the 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 thing I'm kind of thinking is 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 it's the idea of there being so many people living in all in one place it does make sense that they're going to run the river dry in order to give enough water to all of these people. And and so then I kind of think like that that seems like like the fact that that river is drying up kind of seems like I'm thinking in my own opinion, like, I wish there weren't so many people all glommed together right there. Now, of course, a lot of the people really enjoy being all glommed together right there. And so I want them to have all that enjoyment. I want them to enjoy being together in the way that they're together. Um, of course, I I wish for there to be less pollution, and I wish for there to be, you know, solutions to a lot of different bits and bobs. Um and uh less lawns, more food systems, maybe uh less ornamentals, more food systems, something like that, but um at the same time, I want them to pursue their their most joyous joy path, um, which seems to be where they're at. Um, I just feel like i i I want to possibly add into the things that I wish for. <coughs> Wish for less cities, and and I feel a little, I feel like I shouldn't wish for that, but but I, I I'm leaning this direction. Now I'm saying it out loud, possibly for the first time, and I'm saying it to you, Alan. Where is my is my wish a crapulent wish? Um, is there in permaculture? Is there a, a big value for city living that I'm not seeing?
1: Um, I think there is value in having cities, but the way we have cities today is—I'm going to use this term, and I, I, I know it's very hazardous to use this term uh, around you, Paul. But I'm going to say it anyway. The way that we have—and <laughs> we're not allowed to go off on a two-hour tangent on this because we would be—we are would, we would be, we, likely to. The way we have cities designed today is an anti-pattern, um, and I'm using that in the in the, the I'm using that you know uh, I know Paul knows what that is, but for the audience, an anti-pattern, and so I said pattern is a is a word that we can go down a rabbit hole on, but oh,
0: yeah, in uh...
1: programming, the programmers came up with an idea of what we call an anti-pattern, and they define an anti-pattern as an obvious uh, first solution to a problem. That kind of gets the job done, but that has all kinds of nasty, negative uh, consequences to it. It's not really, by any stretch of the imagination, a good way of solving the problem. So, you know, that's what they would call an anti-pattern. And it's like what we have is this: the way we structure cities today is a series of anti-patterns. It's like it emerged... Um, the patterning of cities emerged um, because there were certain criteria and it met that criteria, but in so doing, it created all kinds of negative side effects. Um, And then we got to the point where we just made cities way too dense. We actually got to the point where um, we're starting to see people have, if if you, if you take any mammal and you, create the population density too high, they start to have chronic stress effects. Mm-hmm. And so now we see cities that are have, you know, uh, people have chronic stress from being in them. They're adjusted to it, so they don't even realize how high the chronic stress is. So I would agree that, that there is a population density above which it's very difficult to design a city and have people not be chronically stressed. And I would also say that it's possible to create population centers in a way that's regenerative if the patterning is correct and, uh, but that is something we have not done yet. And that's something, however, I'm working on, um, at this moment, actually on
0: some consulting jobs. I hate the word anti-pattern. It, it yeah, I, yeah. So you're right. You're right that I would hate this word and you're right. I, I hate this word. So, um,
1: But the concept is important, and that's why I wanted to use the concept. The concept of a way of doing a thing that just kind of sort of works but really, you know, has so many negative side effects in the working of it that it really is not a good solution.
0: So the word anti-pattern, because there's the word pattern, and and I believe that the word pattern should only – uh, so each of the patterns should only be used to expand your vocabulary, and that's it. But there is this faction which is called the dumbfuck majority <laughs> because they don't think the way I want them to think. They're thinking the way that the word anti-pattern suggests, and that is that what they try to say, which I think is wrong, especially in software engineering, is they're trying to say, That a, that a pattern is the, uh, is the widely recognized as the best solution to a particular problem. And I'm here to say that that's total horseshit. That that's, that's, because it's kind of like, it's, it, it leads to all sorts of problems. Who decided it was best? And, and, you know, did you really go out and, and ask everybody? No. No, you didn't. And it's like, now let's look at the problem and see what, it, what is it that, that you've said is best and you're a dumb fuck. And I'll bet I could come up with something even better that I could get more buy-in to than what you've suggested. So with this philosophy around what is a pattern, then they come up with the anti-pattern. Which is going to be like what's generally recognized as a shitty idea. And it's kind of like, uh, uh, and it's like, again, let's, let's hold up the poll. Now, I think when you, sir, are using the word anti-pattern, you could say, I think of it as an anti-pattern. I think that's legit. I think anybody could go around and say, I think this is a best solution. I think that's fair. But the moment we start getting into it is an anti-pattern, or it is the best solution. Um, then it's kind of like, you know, how how did you get to the point that you could call it best? And so um, that's that's the thing that's the issue that I take with uh, the word anti-pattern. You can't you cannot have anti-pattern without the part that says that there is a best part of pattern.
1: I'll disagree with that. Um, uh, fundamentally disagree with that. I think that best is in a best in a complex system is impossible to define. Um, it just comes from the system dynamics, um, understanding You know, systems theory. Best is impossible to define in a complex system for multiple reasons. You might be able to try making an argument in a Super simple uh, mechanistic system that between certain choices one was best, um, but that gets into a degenerate case. Now, I would um, I would look at it and say that the you know there is a me- there are mechanistic patterns and then there are living patterns, um, and where patterns ha- get to me to I've seen problems emerge with patterns we will take mechanistic patterns and attempt to apply them mechanistically and mindlessly. As in, this is a pattern in the same sense of, like, um, a, a pattern you would use to cut out or, or create a, a part for a machine, right? It, that is, you do it exactly this way. This is the pattern, and you apply it mechanistically. But if you go looking in living systems, we can see that there are living patterns, those living patterns are broad and non-precise descriptions of the general systems dynamics. They, they tend to be much more qualitative. And this is really the only way to study living systems because they are so complex that you, that trying to describe them quantitatively requires partial differential equations, and so forth, in order to, to do a quantitative description. Therefore, we get to qualitative pattern descriptions and with a very broad understanding that the patterns are imprecise. And it is a, one of the fundamental reworks in thinking that's required to get people out of mechanistic system design and into living and regenerative system design is to get them out of thinking in terms of mechanistic patterns, which are static. And into the only way to look at and describe certain qualities of living regenerative systems is to note some of the broad living patterns that are there. Um, that is the way in which it's done in systems engineering, because it's really the only way to capture
0: the description. And and now we're back to what I was suggesting is that all of patterns should be used exclusively for expanding your vocabulary. And then now I can, over the phone, talk about, you know, certain patterns and you know what I'm talking about. So when I point at something or when, when, you know, for any kind of conversation, for any kind of need to convey knowledge – I can use the patterns as an extension of my vocabulary. And then and then you and I can discuss a thing and and the problem that I have. And, and now I think what I need to do is because you said let's not go into a two-hour thing because it's like, <laughs> yeah, you knew I'd be baited by that. And I, right. I'm going to try to honor your request of not going into a two-hour thing. Remember, we have Chapter 4 of the Big
1: Black Book, which is all about patterns. So we, we oh. have –
0: we can do two hours then. Alright, right. The, the bottom line is, is that I'm just gonna say I've got my issues around patterns. Um I mean I think that they are great for extending your vocabulary. Unfortunately I see people do dumb stuff and make things worse because they have come to some conclusion about what a pattern means and and I think that the worst of the lot, in my opinion, is the anti-pattern because it embraces the part of pattern that I think is errant. It's it's not like you can have anti-vocabulary words, you know. And, um, but, okay, going – so I'm going to set the pattern stuff aside. I'm going to backtrack a little bit. And basically I'm going to say I think that a lot of the big city stuff that I see um, – Has possibilities, but for the most part, it has element, city stuff generally has stuff in it that rubs me the wrong way. But that might, but, but rather than being permaculture as a whole, that might be more about my philosophy about permaculture. My philosophies about permaculture tend to be a little bit more rural. Like what I advocate for, what I want it's difficult to build a Huka culture when you live in an apartment and so right. my the flavor of permaculture that i love is going to be something that is not going to work really great with skyscrapers
1: right on the other hand there are certain aspects of human culture that only emerge when you have a certain Population density. There's certain things in arts and literature and, and social systems, social dynamics, and so forth that only emerge at a certain critical uh, population density. So I think there's an argument that I, I would probably make if I were looking at the patterning of broad patterning of land use, and it's something I'm actually working on right now. This question of broad patterning of land use, uh, looking at design of a large acreage. Um, and it comes down to that idea of, um certain amount of the landscape, small amount can sustain uh, concentrated populations that allow for certain emergent um, phenomena that occur when people get together. You get to, when people get together in, in a, a certain concentration, you can provide the excess required for specialization so people who specialize in biomedical research to to you know uh, bring health forward for example or people who specialize in other kinds of um yeah research and learning or or arts or so forth that um can enrich you know everyone um th- this is a phenomena that occurs when you get a certain amount of density that doesn't typically occur when you have very low rural density. So I think there are that from my perspective there are places on the landscape where higher densities of human settlement make sense. Um, and um, but uh, that is part of a pattern of broad land use um, that um, uh, would include patterns of what I now call ecoculture patterns of permaculture on a uh, on a and then across what um they like to call the transect. They call it the rural to urban transect um, where, you know, you have rural communities and then, uh, you know, peri-urban communities and then going uh, through the transect to urban core. Um, to me, there is a limited amount of, of um, space that we ought to make for a certain number of urban cores uh, designed in my mind. I would like to see them designed very differently than they are now. Um, and I think there is a wide understanding in the built environment community right now that we're going to have to repattern those. They're they're they fundamentally unsustainable, and um, they are degenerating very quickly because they require a huge amount of energy and resource to sustain. So I kind of it would take me a while to unpack unpack all of that, but um, that's kind of how I'm, I'm looking at it these days.
0: All right. <clears throat> Um, real quick, apparently New York City, just the city of New York, New York mm-hmm. City, has a population of 8.4 million. Yes. And the state of Montana, where I live, um, has a population that is less than 1 million. Um And Montana is a pretty big state. So yes. I guess we're spread out quite a bit. Yes. Uh, so I suppose that in New York City you're gonna have Broadway, the, the um, all the all the plays and stuff. And uh and it would be challenging to have things as good as Broadway. Now I've never been to New York City, I've never been to Broadway. I I don't know what I what I'm talking about except for the fact that uh you know, I learned a little bit about it from movies and, and television shows or what I read or whatever. But I get the impression that what makes Broadway do really well is that a lot of the people that make that thrive are in New York City, and then they have to change every few months, they have to change their job. And it's like, that would be difficult to do in a more rural area. Mm-hmm. So I guess that there are things that are beneficial to New York or to a, a large city that... um are uh, worth doing. Now, I, you know, I, I suppose that if I put some thought into it, I could think of like how, if I, if I were king of New York City for uh, a while, I, that I might do that more permaculture ask or something, but I'm not going to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all I would say is that uh, the fact that, that
1: I think that there are places for urban cores does not mean that I, I that I would attempt to defend the uh, current uh, design of New York City. That's um, uh, that's that's where what I, again, I'll come back to the word you hate. Well, I would define as as an anti-pattern um, in that um, for a lot of reasons we want to unpack right now, but we're just, I mean, including the fact that there are a lot of areas there where the, the human density is so high that the people who are living there are under chronic stress. Um, they have no access to nature uh, and, and that nature connection, and they have uh, and and um, because of the density and the fact that it's not um, interconnected with the means of production of the resources required, it requires them to to drive resources in from all around the world to actually sustain that. City in its current state. So, um, I would say that if I were trying to design an urban center, it would look nothing like New York looks right now.
0: They do have Central Park. They do.
1: And it's, I think, one of the few saving graces of the pattern. I mean, I've spent some time in New York and, um, uh, you know, it's, if you didn't have that respite in the, in the middle of Manhattan, then you would, it would, it would, to me, be almost unlivable.
0: Okay. Well, they, you know, I'm I'm looking at a map of, of New York City, and I and I see what looks like some other green space. So maybe there's maybe there's more. But okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to. I, um, I I gotta say that because because there was a time about ten years ago, I was asked to present, and I was part of what I was asked to present is which is better, rural or city. Now, of course, if you live in a city, there are things that you can do, like like suddenly you can you know, like walk to work. And and so that becomes an option or take a bus. But when you live rurally, there's no bus. And if you have a worky job, you're probably going to have a bit of a commute. And then if you have to change your worky job, then your commute probably just got even longer. But, you know, it's like, uh, so then you've got this commute that requires a vehicle kind of, now, since that time, because at the time I gave that presentation, I had to say that um, I felt like rural had a slight edge over urban, which apparently offended several people that <laughs> were at the presentation, and it's like, fair enough. Um, but now, I kind of feel like with my, with having had 10 more years to optimize my designs and come up with the story of Gert, and, you know, um, uh, further expand, expand on that to Gertitude, and, and actually trying to, you know, build some Gert habitat. Um, then yeah, I'm leaning more towards something that's a bit more rural. You know, can I, can I make a community, uh, that's going to be a bunch of Gerts? um, on some acreage, and uh, they're going to be so happy there that they rarely need to leave That's, You know, some kind of, in a way, I'm, I'm trying to bring in the best of both worlds, in a way. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I think yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people that live in New York City and they rarely ever travel outside the city. Like, yes. Maybe once every several years they'll travel outside the city. All of what they like is there. There's My understanding is most people living in New York City do not own a car. And it's like owning a car is like a a thing that would just be dumb in a lot of ways unless you had such outlandish amounts of money that, uh, sure, what the hell, have your own car.
1: I think that we need – I mean, I I think we need – Dissensus here is is the way to, to put it. Disensus instead of consensus, where everybody's trying to do the same. It's like, okay, you are in Montana, and you are furiously working on systems design that makes rural living in Montana luxurious. Um, and there are people that are very drawn to that, and then there are people who are drawn to maybe a, a, a more you know, population dense area. They really love the life of that is afforded by having a few more people around them and higher density and being able to support the specialization. So we need some other people out there who look at you and say, well, Paul, okay, that's just great for you, but I love, I love the dynamics of a more dense area. And therefore I am going to take permaculture principles and look at what the patterning would be on that. Yes, I used the P word again. To allow us to create luxurious, regenerative living in that habitat. And if we got enough permies spread out all over the place, all figuring out how to create those designs for their place, we could create this mosaic landscape across, you know, that, that, in which we had beautiful ways of living everywhere across the rural to urban transect.
0: This podcast is continued in part two. Hi, this is Mark.
1: Sometimes talking to a friend or family member about permaculture can be met with a blank stare if it's all new to them. A great way to explain some of it can be over a card game using permaculture playing cards, which each have interesting facts with quality illustrations and descriptions. A wide range of people, places, and things, all related to permaculture, can be found on the
0: permaculture playing cards at richsoil.com forward slash cards.